Thank you for downloading this episode of the podcast. Before we jump into the conversation, we wanted to say welcome to season two. Have you ever wondered how the North American Writing Center model is taken up abroad? Have you ever wondered how it works and its constraints and challenges? Have you ever wondered what we could learn from our colleagues from around the world? If these are some of the questions you've been pondering, season two is just for you. We're excited to bring you conversations from our international colleagues, including Dr. Rose Richards from Stellenbosch University in South Africa, Dr. Jose Lai and Alan Ho from the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and Dr. Violeta Molina Natera from Pontificia Universidad Haberiana in Colombia. And to kick things off, we're speaking with our very own Mickey Harris, who is the brains and heart of the journal and the blog, and also a foundational voice in our field. She will share with us the origin story and the vision of the blog as we talk about how to internationalize our field and our writing center. We hope you enjoy learning from our colleagues as much as we did. If I ask somebody on the street what goes into writing, well, you have to learn about punctuation and grammar, and they can't go beyond that. So you've mm-hmm. got a mission. Welcome to Slow Agency. This podcast offers a space for writing center and writing studies people to slow down think, dialogue, and reflect on issues affecting their professional lives. I'm Esther Namubiru. I'm Wajali. And I'm Anna Habib. We are honored to steward this podcast. To learn more about Slow Agency, visit Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders, a blog of WLN, a journal of writing center scholarship. Today, we're chatting with the founder and editor-in-chief of WLN, a journal of Writing Center scholarship, and of the blog Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders. Muriel Harris, or as we affectionately call her, Mickey, is the brains and heart behind the journal and the blog. As we embark on the second season of the podcast, Slow Agency, we're excited to have Mickey on to tell us about the beginnings of the blog, Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders, where this podcast is hosted, and where she sees the Writing Center field evolving and internationalizing. Welcome, Mickey. Glad to be here. Glad to talk with you. So, Mickey, back in 1976, you joined um, Purdue University as assistant professor, and you're now faculty emeritus. Um, And while you were there, you started and led the Purdue Writing Lab. Um, You also started um, the online resources for the Purdue Writing Lab, which now is a website that's visited by millions of students and writers around the globe. Um, Also, while you were there, you started the WLN. At the time, it was called the Writing Lab Newsletter. Um, and now has um, morphed into the title has changed into the writing a WLN a Journal of Writing Center Scholarship, and then you also began the blog which we are now co-editors for, um, titled Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders. So we wondered if you could tell us about the story behind the beginnings of WLN the journal and then the blog itself, sort of your vision for those two. Well, everything begins because of a need. Um, I started in 1976 with a brand new PhD in English Renaissance scholarship, 16th century English literature. Uh, There were several other people starting writing centers also with no background in composition. There there wasn't a field yet of writing center studies. There was no journal, no blogs, nothing. There was no printed information. And a few of us knew each other 
And we're trying to get together to talk about a few other people who might be starting this brand new, to us, idea of writing sentence. And Neil Lerner has done a marvelous job of tracing backward. <clears throat> but what was growing around the country now, <clears throat> excuse me, was a strong sense of a writing deficiency. Um, Time magazine had done why Johnny can't write as a cover, and, and people were saying, oh, people need extra help, and everyone was fishing around for what. And um, we said, how about uh, proposing a session at the Four Cs? Maybe a couple other people will show up and we can chat, which is what we did. And we got a little room down the end of a hallway, off in a corner, and the four of us were sitting at the table hoping somebody would come in. And a few people came in, and more people came in, and more people came in, and the room filled, and the hallway filled, and people were lining the walls. And we realized we had a community. We had no idea that each other existed. And none of us knew what a writing center was because nobody had said what a writing center is. And all we knew was that it was the place to talk one-to-one, and we were all going to figure this out. There were no graduate studies in rhetoric composition at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, we were talking and talking, and the enthusiasm and the interest in the idea of sharing and collaborating. I mean, if collaboration was just boring that day because we said we have to help each other share what we know. And uh, at the end of our session, the next session was crowding in, and I said, I'll try to collect names of all of us who are here and we'll keep in touch. If you live in a state out west, you want to know who else is around. So I sent the sheet around. People wrote down their names and their street addresses. There were no cell phones. Mm -hmm. I know that's a shock to you young people, but we lived without them. There was mail the telephone, and um, that was it. It's a way of communicating. Mm -hmm. And so I had this list of about 40 or 50 people, 60, I don't remember. And I sent out just sheets like once a month, who else is here, if anybody else had any materials to share. And for the first year, you could look back at the archives. It was mostly just let's keep in touch. Let's share what we know. And people would say, I did this, and someone else said, I did that. And slowly it began to grow. (laughs) And people start writing articles Oh, or articles, mm-hmm. <laughs> tentatively, because the scholarship was just not yet there. And it began just to grow into a journal. Um, it started so informally that I just called it the Writing Lab newsletter because our mm-hmm. writing lab was our writing lab. And I didn't know what to call the sheet that I was sending out, so it was a newsletter. Mm-hmm. And we hung on to that term because it was so non-threatening for people entering the field. For the first years, all the people entering the field were coming from literature, from linguistics, from ESL. We weren't writing center people, and we were all pretty embarrassed by the fact until we sort of said to each other, I know my my PhD was in Victorian literature. What was yours? (laughs) (laughs) And it was that admission that we didn't know anything and that we were helping each other. So the journal was a way to share, and that's what I tried to say, that little subtext, the header, sharing voices one-to-one, we were Mm -hmm. trying to talk to each other. And then as the world got more technically involved and we had um, online communication, which was many years into the future, um, if you want to know about OWL, by the way, uh, because we were all so new, uh, we thought that we should have handouts to give to the students and for ourselves in the writing lab. So we kept producing handouts, which were a great instructional material, because at their staff meetings, we very often talked about this. 
how do you tell a student what an introduction is? And we would write out a handout. We would try it for a while. Next head, next uh, staff meeting would say, nah, we have to say so-and-so, we'd revise it. So all these materials kept growing and getting revised. We had captains and captains of them. Uh, digital world came along and at first it was just email before the web. And we put up all these handouts and I don't know, just so students at Sunday night could download them at Purdue. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody at Purdue downloaded them, but people all over the world began to find them. And that was, we called it the Online Writing Lab, O-W-L-O. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the web started, uh, we were very fortunate in finding somebody who could help us go onto the web. And so we began to have a web presence. And so we had OWL and all these other materials, plus all the resources for our campus. Mm-hmm. But then as we were, so the the Writing Lab newsletter was progressing well into a journal. We hung on to that name longer than we should have. It really is a, a journal now. It was a journal years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, somebody contacted me from an Eastern European country saying he was the only person in his country starting a writing center that I know of anyone that he could talk to. He was as lost 20 or 30 years later, as we were back in the 70s. And so we talked to one of the people who was quite uh, digitally uh, adept. He was one of our editors, Alan Benson. Mm -hmm. And he and I talked about it. We said, there's this thing that people are starting called blogs. Let's try to have a blog. And if other people find each other across the world, they can help each other because they are finding themselves maybe the only person in their country or a person without a travel uh, funds so they cannot meet anybody else? Wouldn't a blog be a way for people to talk to each other? In the United States, we had W Center, which was much more active at that time. And it was where people found answers for each other. I'm doing so-and-so. Uh, could I connect to you? Could I visit you? Um, I found this. It was just an interesting place to share advice, problems, and so on. And that's what we wanted the blog to be for people around the world, because I totally understood what they were going through. And the blog just advanced from there with the same mission as starting the writing center, as starting the newsletter, as starting OWL, as starting the blog. People need to communicate. I think the heart of writing centers is collaboration. Mm-hmm. And now that we're so large, it's harder to collaborate when it was a smaller group. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We collaborated much more freely, but now there are hundreds and hundreds and all over the world. And so what you people are doing with the blog now is as vital, I think, as the journal. Um, journals tend to stay within their own countries. I would love for uh, WLN to be as international as the blog is, but it isn't. Almost all our contributions come from the United States and some from Canada. We rarely hear about anybody else in the world. Mm-hmm. So the blog, and you're doing a fantastic job, especially with those interviewing people from different uh, writing centers in different countries, where they can connect to each other. And mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely vital. It makes us grow. It helps us understand what we're doing. We articulate our principles. So mm-hmm. we come together. We collaborate. Mm-hmm. So I handed it off to you on the blog. And we are just loving the experience. We're so grateful for it because we're meeting so many amazing and interesting people um, and are so glad to be um, contributing to that. And that was a very helpful history, Mickey. I'm just so glad we got to hear it straight from you. 
You're listening to the podcast of the blog, Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders. To learn more about our guests, visit wlnjournal.org forward slash blog. And now back to the conversation. I'm interested in the movements that have been happening in writing studies when um, the the Writing Center Association became IWCA. And so this this vision or this movement that I guess began in the early 2000s of internationalizing um, our different organizations and associations, like what does that actually mean beyond the collaboration or the connection? Well, collaboration, I guess, is is more than just this. But what does it mean beyond the connect connecting people across borders? So are you saying that to you, internationalizing means bringing people from different countries? Um, I think it's more than that. I'm interested in how our our writing studies fields have been internationalizing. And one of their efforts has been to put that title, you know, change our titles and our associations to International WAC or International Writing Center. And so what exactly do you think that that means in, in our field and what we should be doing beyond just connecting to different people? Well, but connecting... Countries is one thing, but connecting Mm -hmm. cultures is another. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit disturbing when I would hear occasionally that somebody in Europe said, well, they were starting writing centers because that's so common now in the United States Mm. with a sense that whatever you do, we could do. Right. Uh, But we're not paying attention to cultures. The cultures are so different that I think one thing that internationalizing is going to do beyond connecting us and helping us learn about each other in different ways, is finding out what is universal, fundamental, foundational about tutoring writing? What does individualized writing involve? When you sit with another person, what is that? There are some basic principles that we all share. And by my listening to somebody in Japan or in Ireland or in South Africa, as we talk, I will learn that those are just as meaningful as they are to me. On the other hand, everyone lives in the culture of their country or their continent in which there are things which we cannot share. Mm-hmm. For example, I was re- I, I love your blog with all being different people. And I think it was the people at Hiroshima, mm-hmm. uh, when you interviewed them, they say that they also help the faculty who are writing in English, which is their second language. Mm-hmm. That's not something that is typical of American mm-hmm. university. So that introduces the whole factor of people learning, writing in another language and working on that. So that's a cultural thing, and what they do is important. Um, and the, I think it was the University of Limerick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you interviewed them. I love, I love your blog. It's so oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, James Cleary, I think. Lawrence. Lawrence, Lawrence Cleary, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was so fascinated by the blog, I wasn't paying attention to names. <laughs> but he was saying that they are a public-facing university, mm-hmm. uh, that they work with the, the, the surrounding county, the state, the country. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's not a mission that I know about. So mm-hmm. culturally, he's got a somewhat different mission. And they provide services out through their writing center out into the society. So I'm learning about other things that writing centers can do, which are not foundational to all writing centers. Yeah. So internationalizing means what are we doing at the heart of all this, which we all share? 
what is culturally bound, but what is an opportunity that somebody else might pick up and say, gee, I could do that. It's a little, it's different than my culture. Um, I don't know that it, it'll research one university. Uh, they would be very happy about spending time from the writers that are going out into the community. So you learn to, to separate what your mission is and what your culture is telling you and what your writing center can do and what your writing center field encompasses. So to me, that's all internationalizing. Just as a quick follow-up, as culture informs practice, do you think that there are certain principles or tenets within the North American Writing Center space that might need to evolve? Or could they stay the same, but we just see um, a new theory coming up that that fits that culture's context? Because I can I can see how someone might say, "Well, as we as we work within the context we're in, how does that push against some of the fundamental principles of the center? Is it is it pushing against them, or is it just?" expanding them or are we just coming up with new theories altogether? I don't know that there I would call them theories, but there are different needs. In America we talk an awful lot about the student, but the student we're picturing is a native born English speaker. Yet we have thousands and thousands, actually millions, of non native speaking students in our writing centers. And we have yet to really incorporate deep understanding of teaching English as a second language. We have not encompassed that, yet st- how many people are working with non-native speakers of English all the time? And it's not yet part of our theory, so I hope that one section of our Writing Center theory and practice does more to acknowledge that we are not uh, TESOL people. We don't understand how to teach English as a second language, but we're enc- encountering it every single day. Why aren't we working more deeply in that field? Um, I, I think it's something that we have not neglected, but not owned up to as fully as we should. Um, I think another thing we probably should own up to is trying to distinguish what is online tutoring and what is person-to-person, one-to-one tutoring. Um, We keep saying we're trying to make them the same, but they're not. They're quite different. Have we really explored in any depth what online tutoring involves, which is different from person-to-person? What's missing? What do you gain from each? What do you lose from each? Uh, where are we articulating these gaps? So writing center theory evolves because new needs come up. We are, have a greater proportion of international students and immigrants, students who are not speaking English at home. They don't, I mean, they're Americans, but they aren't speaking English as their first language. And we have all these visitors from other countries who may or may not go back to their country. We've gone digital. We don't really know an awful lot about digital. <laughs> We're finding our way. And so, yeah, it'll work its way into theory and practice. Um, we're at the very beginning of both, I would say. And I, as Esther, you and I were talking before about another need, which is to help the world understand what the teaching of writing involves. <laughs> Yeah, someday we're going to hear from Esther on some <laughs> NPR programs speaking her mind. Well, <laughs> it, I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you I for saying it. that, for setting that out into the into the universe. Yes, <laughs> um, I I think it's interesting too to think about. So there's a blog post that we put up by uh, Miller 
Um, this was back in, I think this is a 2011 post, uh, talking about a writing center in Kenya that she helped to start and talking about what writing means for them, academic writing, mm-hmm. good writing, uh, and all of those other other ideas. And it she presented some very interesting observations, you know, one of which is there's this question about power, which we've already talked about at some length in the writing center Mm -hmm. theory, but power is also culturally defined. And so she found that there were a lot of interesting cautions, hesitations from the faculty within the university where she was trying to start the writing center. Um, And it wasn't so much about getting the students through the center or even getting tutors to come through the center. It was about convincing the faculty there that writing um, the way that they think of it and the the way that they think of authority um, and who has the right to say what writing looks like can can be different. Um, So I think more conversations like that, that also push, push us within the North American space to pause before we assume what we know is what is known. Um, <laughs> maybe there's a different way of doing writing, um, and of and therefore of being a writing center. But uh, you're also noting very properly that writing is not taught in many countries. It just is. Anyone can write. Anyone can speak. Um, and someone was. We had a lovely article in, in the uh, journal WLN about somebody who was invited to start a writing center in England. And he met up with this faculty who said, why are you teaching? What, what authority do you have to teach writing? Students should be able to write better. They shouldn't be in the university unless they could write. So there's a culture which does not recognize the teaching of writing um, as a very complex field. Uh, I had in mind a slightly different thing, though. Um, writing centers right now are so busy trying to prove their existence and, and rationalize why they shouldn't be shut down. We have a large problem with funding of higher education, which has cut back budgets, which has made efficiency uh, a byword. <laughs> and unfortunately, too many universities now have a business model, which is wrong. But in the business model, you do what's efficient. And what's efficient is to cut out the writing center because anyone can write or to cut it back. So that understanding also exists in the United States. We don't always acknowledge that writing should be something that's been taught. And I have a personal belief that teaching writing means you teach it in a group, what can be taught in a group. And there's some very, very important things that in workshops or classrooms or whatever, there are principles of writing, but then every writer is different. And so that personal side of writing is what the writing center takes. I see it as a two-sided business, which has to come together. And until we articulate for the world why they both have to come together and why writing has to be taught, I think writing as a field has always been threatened from the outside. Um, And I think, is that part of what you're seeing as a power problem? Because too many faculty came through higher education without any writing being taught they write, they're published. Why does anybody have to spend any time teaching students to write? Or even talking about the writing, maybe they haven't been, this is very, this is generalizing, but I, for the most part, perhaps they haven't been asked to articulate how, what does writing look like for them? 
they write. They've just been writing all along. They've published. But yeah. what does that mean actually for them when they write in their fields? And I, I uh, had, yeah, you know, I had a very discouraging experiences. I kept thinking that if I did workshops for faculty, that they would come and we could talk about writing. And I tried workshop after workshop. We at one time I was at Purdue University. They had a center for. Um, teaching excellence, I think it was called. And through that, I could offer workshops. But as people came in, they were so busy complaining about the students who didn't write and trading stories of how horrible the students wrote that I could not get them, except for a few who could articulate a little bit about writing. And so we began just to, um, I turned it around and I said, let me help you with assignments. I'll be glad to help you with, because I tried to tell them what we called privately uh, AFHs, in the writing lab, whatever we had, we, it was a very open room and we had certain acronyms that if you needed help from another tutor and if somebody was sitting there saying, um, I have some question about an AFH, which meant somebody else needed to come over and help. And an AFH was an assignment from hell. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that those, is excellent. Right? Absolutely. Oh, wow. that's you know, and some tutors were just so <laughs> overwhelmed by the horrible assignment, mm-hmm. and the student can't write to a you know a day of age. So um, I thought maybe workshops to help the faculty see how to write a good assignment would help. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. you know you need to specify the audience, you need to specify what kind of information, mm-hmm. and I tried to lead them in that, but it tended to often, unfortunately, to uh, dissolve into, yeah, but they don't know what they're doing. They don't study. They don't buy their textbooks. And Mm -hmm. sort of blaming students. And there weren't enough people who could really understand what I was trying to do. So it's it's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it is a power problem. I'm here. I'm in charge. I know. And um, it's a student's problem. But there's another cultural problem with power. I was very curious a long time ago, um, as when we had foreign students coming in, international students, um, what their conception of a tutor was. And we had a, um, a program of teaching uh, international students. There was a, a very small program to prepare them for teaching in the classroom. And so I asked the teachers in those classes if they would distribute a, a little questionnaire. And I asked them what their various questions, what they envisioned a tutor's job is. And a tutor's job in certain cultures is to tell you what the right answer is. Mm-hmm. So they walk into the writing center saying, tell me the right answer. That's how I got to the here. That's your job. That's how I envision your job. And they place the power in the tutor's hand and are very disappointed when the tutor doesn't say, here's what the right answer is. <laughs> if you were a, if you were that student and you're trying to meet the student where they are, or if you were that writing center located in another country where that student comes from and where tutors are viewed that way, would it be okay to let the tutor just assume a lot more power than they would typically assume in a North American context? Or is that not even the point? <laughs> That's a huge point. <laughs> That's the subject of books and articles and conferences, you know. And I don't know that it's ever been articulated well enough, except I can give you a very short answer from somebody who was head of the program. Because uh, I kept asking, uh, what do you tell an international student um, and what do you try to help them find themselves? And what do you try to teach them by principles and have them turn into practice? And he, 
his answer first was you go for the problems that interfere with communication. And if it doesn't interfere with communication, but they're not going to know the answer because they're not a native speaker, you give them the answer. Um, if you use a thesaurus and you try to pick words, there's no way that somebody coming from another language will know which word is appropriate, which isn't. I don't see any problem with telling them what the right answer is or giving the models for how we do it in English or what's expected of us in English. Um, I think there's a, should be a, native speakers have some obligation to help non-native speakers. Now, a lot of people would disagree with me. <laughs> um, it's a contentious issue. Mm-hmm. Mickey, this reminds me of, and um, I was acting director at the writing center at George Mason for a few years. And um, during that time, I realized, because um, we, we have a huge population of international students at Mason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized, um, and I myself, as I'm a multilingual writer and an immigrant student was at Mason a while ago. But I realized that the whole sort of um, convention around higher order concerns and lower order concerns, which millions of articles have been, you know, investigating, didn't quite fit the the needs of the international multilingual writers. So when they would come in and say, could I please have, I, I need help with grammar, the tutors had been trained to say, well, you know, we don't focus on grammar. We're going to focus on higher order concerns. And so the students' needs were just, um, you know, hijacked, I guess, to vote because of like this writing center orthodoxy around, no, 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 we're going to focus on higher order concerns. And so that just kept bothering me, you know, it kept coming up over and over. And I just felt like we had to do something about it. We, we had to be willing to say, you know what, in some situations, the, the, the pedagogical principles that we uphold as writing center principles don't necessarily work. And so we developed this program that we called the ESL opt-in program where students, so there were specific tutors who were trained with TESOL and TESOL, and they would work with these students and they would actually address lower order concerns first, because what the research shows in TESOL is that that helps to lower, you know, the affective filter where students level of anxiety would go down a little bit. And then you could get at some of the higher order. So I said in this ESL opt-in program, whichever students opt in and are signed up, you flip the you flip the script. You start with lower order and then you move to higher order. And then we also increased, you know, we had 10, 10 sessions per student allowable per semester. We increased it to, 50, to 20, actually. Or we had 15 and we increased it to 30. So yeah. students were able to get more appointments. And so that to me was a big moment in this whole question around what does it mean to really serve our students? What does it mean to international our writing center? internationalize our writing centers here at home in the U.S. Um, and how and what does it mean to say there's this one principle that we have to uphold no matter <laughs> what? And it's um, so to me, that was a very eye opening experience, which got me so interested in all of these questions we're talking about here today um, and, you know, about theory and practice and how it is context specific and local and it should be modified for the local context. And this is why I'm really unhappy that we're online because I want to reach out and hug you. <laughs> oh, I'd love that. Next time at a conference. <laughs> okay, virtual hug, virtual uh-huh. hug. Um, let me just backtrack for a minute. And you all have 
the experience, but some people may not have that experience. When I was when I was first married, um, my husband had just gotten his PhD, and he had a National Science Foundation to study in Germany, um, and to spend a year doing some research in Germany. So as newlyweds, we went off to Germany trying to learn German. Um, and you're in another culture, you're fairly well educated, and you feel like an idiot because you cannot ask to buy something because you don't know how to ask that for that particular thing. Um, it's At that point, the grammar was so important to me because I wanted to do something and ask for something, but I couldn't because I didn't understand the basic difference. Um, and if you translate that back into the international student sitting in, or the immigrant student st- sitting in the writing center, these are educated people. They have met the requirements of a university. People coming from another language are here to study highly technical subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're learning a whole new vocabulary. And they've got a lot of affect involved with this. Writing is you, you know. You are displayed on the page. And they understand the importance of making a stupid grammatical error. It affects them. And I totally understand that because I have been there and done that. And any of you who have done that know exactly why I want to know that verb ending. I want to know the gender of that noun. I need to know it. Um, So there is a reason why we should help students. That is a need. It's a very real need. Um, and so I think we are meeting the needs of these students if we help them by giving them answers. Um, and they often <laughs> are very good at memorizing those. And they come in with really lovely, complicated questions. And sometimes it's actually a beating difference. And I remember this example when somebody brought up at a staff meeting um, why we really have to pay attention to grammar. And it was the matter of the difference between a and the for someone from a language which does not have the definite or indefinite article. Uh, she was writing about uh, the culture of the mall, and she had to distinguish between a mall and the mall when she talked about a specific mall. So for her, there was a huge meaning difference between malls and what they do in the way of socializing for kids and talking about ones that she had studied, which was the mall. So let's never put down low-level, lower-order concerns. They have meaning. They cause uh, students to be unsure of themselves, wary of the language. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why we should be paying attention to their needs. <laughs> yeah. So you are so on point, and thank you for doing that. And interestingly, somebody from Canada has just submitted what I hope will get published WLN is a peer-reviewed journal, so all I can do is hope, because it's not our job. (laughs) (laughs) We just hope we get the right reviewers. Um, She wants to do a two-part series of articles, the first to define all the problems of international students, because she's at a university in Canada with a very large international population. And her answer, which will be her second article, she says, is doing short courses for these people where they actually sign up for an extended I don't know, six or eight weeks short course on grammar, mm-hmm. which then prepares them to come into the writing lab and, and do more um, more work, which at a more complicated level, because they can't handle everything in the writing center. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's her answer. And I hope we get yeah. to talk about it. 
You're listening to the podcast of the blog Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders. To learn more about our guests, visit wlnjournal.org/blog. And now back to the conversation. So, Miki, um, now we're in 2021.、Um, we just last year we pivoted online because of pandemic, and now universities. And other educational institutions around the world are turning their attention to a post-pandemic higher education context. They're thinking about student enrollment and reprioritizing their resources as they start building again. So, in some ways, this is creating an uncertain yet hopeful future. What opportunities and challenges could the writing center experience in this kind of future? Uh, you people provided a lot of answers when you put up the COVID nineteen、uh, responses.、Right. I think we saw a lot of what some of the problems are, and we saw what some of the answers are. And I was amazed at the resilience that some of these students expressed. But if anyone hasn't gone through that COVID nineteen collection, there it's, it's just inspiring to read it. Some. Some students face challenges that you'd never think about、um, unless you realize what their home condition is, where they had to go. Do you remember the, there were some students talking about in South Africa going back to their village where they couldn't find a quiet place because、right. it's a very communal place.、Yeah. They couldn't study. They couldn't be quiet. Other people couldn't make connections. One guy had to send his lab. <laughs> experiment or his results, and there was no way to get it out.、Um, there are. Differences in、um, people's ability to stay online to have connections、mm-hmm. um, that we don't realize, and there are people who have disabilities which cause them problems. There are people who aren't、uh, financially able to have online communication. So we have to realize there's going to be great problems. And I, here in the United States, I don't know if I can make a political statement, but、um, the infrastructure building has to include broadband. For people, I mean, it, it's in my experience here in Indiana,、uh, students had to come to college, high school parking lots to do their homework <laughs> because they didn't have connectivity at home, just because they lived out in the country or they couldn't afford a phone or whatever. So there are problems, but on the other hand, you read about so many writing centers experiencing growth. Yeah, more and more students coming to them who weren't able to come in or were. Ha- Because of job responsibilities or work or family or whatever, the being online digital has allowed a lot more people access that we didn't realize. On the other hand, it has cut some people off. <laughs> so we have these two、uh, conflicting problems. But I think it's opened up a lot of avenues of what writing centers can do. And、uh, we're just preparing an article for a future publication by somebody talking about online workshops. And how she's created、uh, these online workshops, and I never thought about how you can the complications of creating online workshops so that they build up an archive of these for teachers to show in their classrooms. So there's new opportunities coming in.、Um, there's providing wider access for people, and I've certainly heard from people in the United States who live in very huge states with students far away, in Wyoming or Montana. 
where the students can't come to campus as easily. So you're giving access to people who never had this kind of free access. I think the digital world is going to open up some incredible possibilities. But that's what I was saying before. We have to study and be ready to understand more deeply what are we doing when we communicate online? And because there's such a variety, there's synchronous, asynchronous, there's face. Um, right. We have to know all the different opportunities for meeting each other and how they differentiate. And I don't think we've done much of that yet. So we have to think about that a lot. So it's a huge, vast area for exploration. And I think it's challenging. I hope a lot of interesting new things happen because of it. Um. Mickey, you mentioned the COVID-19 subpage, which listeners, if you haven't been there yet, you should go and oh, check those out. They're great. And I think we should all applaud Ouija, who's done a fantastic job. With oh, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Thank you, Ouija. <laughs> I, I, kept, I, I think I would send five or ten of them responses a day that came in, and Ouija got them up, and she got people's yep. photographs, and she put them on the web. We mm-hmm. kept her busy. <laughs> I was I was looking through those reflections and you mentioned uh we got we got many from all over the world and I took some time to review just the ones that were talking about how they were using the online space to adapt to the to the moment they were in you know the yeah. the the university has closed and we need to keep going how do we do it I f- and I found it interesting how the majority of those that talked about these were about 20 of the hundreds we received uh, I just picked out 20, so it was very small. Most of them from South Africa were mentioning how it was difficult to to even consider the online space because students had different um, challenges they were facing to access that. But it got me also wondering about on an international writing center level, the the way we define resilience, what does that actually mean? And also as we evolve and start really incorporating online writing labs in some way into our practice, is there a an indirect kind of a digital inclusion issue that we might start running into as a writing center? And if, it, if there is a, an issue that comes up like that, where parts of the world that don't have as much... Um, of a robust uh, infrastructure, technological infrastructure could get left out uh, and then the other part of the world would move forward. Where does the writing center come in and help with that and prevent that digital in- divide from, from occurring if it is already occurring? Um, so I wanted to pose those questions to you. Are you concerned at all about a potential digital divide or a lack of digital inclusion as different writing centers become really separated out because of those that have access to technology and those that don't? Well, even within the writing center, there will be a, a, a divide. Some of those students come from homes which do not provide the access that they need. Uh, some people will come from homes which are so digitally <laughs> adept that they can meet those. So this digital divide is going to happen until the world equalizes itself where we all have the same, which I I think is probably harder than world peace to come by. But the digital divide is so real. I mean, anyone who has taught high school in the the outside of uh, cities knows how even in the United States there are so many students who couldn't even compete their grammar school and high school 
classes because they were unable to have the digital connection they needed. Um, it's not a matter of being robust. It's a matter of having nothing. <laughs> so, yes, but the Writing Center cannot provide for students' homes. And until institutions realize and the world realizes that this is a necessity of life like healthcare, <laughs> education encompasses having the tools for education. We as, a, as societies must acknowledge that and provide for it. So I don't know that the Writing Center can do very much except think about how to, how to provide for multiple levels of digital connection. Asynchronous, synchronous, uh, probably fake, uh, Zoom or any of the other um, more... Apps that require newer newer uh, instruments. You have to have a, high, a phone that can connect via Zoom. You can't work with an ancient computer or iPad. So we're going to have to provide people with equipment that they can do that. But that can't come from the writing center, which many don't even have the resources to hire enough tutors. Um, and I'm going to go back to that business model, which keeps saying it's not efficient. Until we approve that efficiency is not as important as education and what education entails and what education entails is also beating the digital divide where we come to accept that we have to fund education. And if a student goes to a university, he has to have the equipment. But there's another thing. We talked about the cultural difference. Do you remember, did you meet up with any of those students? And I think they were from Fort Hare University. One of them went back to his village where he was expected to do his chores. Once he was home, he yeah. did his chores. So he didn't even have time. I mean, even if he had the best iPhone 14, 15, 16, he was expected to be doing things. Or I think in another one, a charming one, where the little kids all came to meet the, the outsider who came home. He never had a quiet moment. So there are conditions that people are going to be in which even if they are part of the digital divide, they don't have the culture in which to, to do their work. So there are a lot of complications. I don't know that they're going to be answered very soon. In um, that kind of environment, then, how do you define resilience? This is not to discount anyone who has actually, you know, who who is saying they've been resilient and on, in part because of being able to act, to, to go online. However, for centers that don't have that kind of access, how do we define resilience or how, how, how would we reframe resilience to acknowledge what they've done? Resilience to me is, is just pulling yourself together and forcing yourself to overcome the hurdles. Um, and there were all kinds of hurdles. Some of these students talked about the lack of community and what they did to find community. They, they, met the problem, they defined the problem for themselves and then began looking for solutions. So part of, of resilience is uh, somebody wants to define problem solving as uh, either being in an, an ill-defined problem or a clearly defined problem. You can't solve an ill-defined problem. You have to solve a clearly defined problem. And part of resilience for some of these people was defining the problem so that they could then figure out the steps to do something about it. Some students had to overcome loneliness, had to overcome a feeling of desperation. They couldn't keep up. They were digitally adept and they had to learn things they were uncomfortable with. But they sort of pulled themselves up and said, I will do this. 
and they did. Um, and they were so proud of themselves. And you just you just wanted to congratulate each one of those kids who said, I made it, I did it, I, I learned how to tutor online, and I pulled myself together and I did it, and darn it, I did a good job. <laughs> That's resilience to me. So, Mickey, um, what other opportunities and potential do you see the, the, for writing center praxis as we continue to evolve as a field? Um, I'm going to go back. I know the time is short, but I'm going to go back to the need to articulate our field. We have to stop counting numbers and say, oh, I had more students this semester than last, which will allow uh, us to stay in existence, to stop being so defensive saying that, that we're trying to prove that we're doing something good by, by using things that we think will matter in the business model. Let's return to the fact that we are teaching writing is a teaching in the humanities. And it may involve research, but it also involves a lot more theory, a lot more articulation, a lot more public facing. I like that term. It's new to me. <laughs> um, convincing the world that it's important. One of the most important things we have right now is the need for communication. And that's a need that is international. We have to start, talk to each other. And there's so much miscommunication in this world right now. So how important are we? We're teaching people how to communicate clearly, cogently, uh, and inform and keep each other uh, informed of what we want and what they want, learning how to listen, how to write. Um, so let's articulate our field so that the world says, you are teaching something vital. We will fund you because it's important. I think that's the greatest need. Um, otherwise, I think we have to explore more digital challenges. We don't know yet. I mean, digital, five years from now, they'll look back and say, you know, we were in the, in the dark ages for what we could do. Uh, think about you know, 2026 and what people will be able to do that we don't know what's ahead. But let's keep poking out into the abyss and seeing what's there and what more we can do and to find the problems and to find the challenges and to find the answers. Mickey, as we close, um, we usually ask our guests if there's an elusive or unformed idea or line of inquiry that you are personally kind of <sighs> pursuing. Um it, I, I, you may have a million, I'm sure you do, but is there one you'd be willing to share with us? Oh, well, okay. <laughs> um, personally, I am very committed to the environmental challenge we face. Uh, and our local town is a tree city. And we have a bunch of volunteers as a tree committee trying to educate the city as to why we need trees. More, the more trees for uh, environmental purposes, they provide shade, they provide oxygen, they, they soak up carbon dioxide, they take in rainwater. Um, there's so many things that trees do, so educating the public. But right now we're just trying to do some fundraising so we can have a nursery, a city nursery, where the city can plant its own trees and, and because we also had to fundraise. And to plant a tree in our town costs $450. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, a couple of years ago, it was $200. Um, and so rather than fundraise for every tree we want to plant, um, because it's so vital. You know, there are countries in the world where people are planting thousands and thousands of trees. In uh -huh. Japan, they have committed schools where people just 
find places to plant trees. Uh, if you go online, there's some incredible stuff about the importance of trees mm-hmm. and what what's happening in um, the rainforest and why they're changing the, the climate. That's a personal interest. Yeah, it's a very strong interest. Yeah. Uh, what I really want to do, and I keep talking about understanding where the writing center fits into the composition world, is I. I can't find the time to sit down because the journal takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It takes, well, you know, with the blog and how much, you know, you say tonight, I'm just going to do this one thing. And then six emails pop up and you have to answer <laughs> yeah. them. And, but I really believe that the answer to what the writing center does is personalizing. There's a public a group aspect of learning writing, but there has, every writer is so different that we've got to come to understand what those differences do and how to meet them and how to treat them. And so if I ever have time, and at my age there, I don't know what I have left. People mm-hmm. in our 80s are very touchy about this. You know, <laughs> they say, don't buy green bananas at my age. <laughs> but I want to define what that one-to-one means and why it's so important. And if I ever could carve out two months of quiet, I would... That's that's my personal interest. And I keep collecting little things on my computer and little notes and things I want to read, things I do, and I've never been able to put it all together to think through it. So that that's my personal challenge. Well, what a gift for you to share that seed with our listeners and our readers, you know, because I hopefully multiple people can pursue that question and we can oh, I hope so. get at the bottom of get at get at something fruitful. I, I want a, an intelligent intellectually rigorous uh, reason why writing centers have to be. Mm-hmm. It's not extra help. It's something so vital that it has to be part of teaching writing. And teaching writing means communication. Is there an, um, a book that you're reading now? <laughs> I've got four of them on my, my nightstand. <laughs> the worst one is, and I shouldn't tell you, it's called The World Without Us. It's a very intelligent explication of what will the world will be when human beings get out of the way, <laughs> what we've done to destroy our world and how it's going to evolve after we're gone. <laughs> oh, wow. That's wow. interesting. Well, and this book is very, the one that I'm reading, I think was a bestseller at one point a couple of years ago. He actually talks about how long it will take until subways and uh, underground caverns flood, mm-hmm. until cement dissolves, until iron rots, until animals return, until the insects come back. You know, And he's, factually very interesting and then i'm also reading another book about the the secret life of trees oh (laughs) yeah there are some fascinating work being done on trees and how they actually communicate to each other and if you're interested that we think animals communicate plants communicate (laughs) i heard that i did hear about this book yeah well Mickey, we wanted to thank you so much for joining us thank you That's it for today's episode. Thanks to our guest for the insightful discussion. We would also like to thank our listeners and blog subscribers for supporting us. And a special thanks to Emmanuel Mubiru, who provided our theme song. For notes and resources mentioned today, visit the Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders blog at wlnjournal.org forward slash blog.